Hello everyone. This is the first in a self-improvement series that we will do as part of this channel and podcast. Excellence, in every sense of the term, is part of the foundation of our whole approach to being the best man that you can be, in order to be, among many other things, as attractive and appealing to women as possible. You work on your personal excellence every day, and one of the several outcomes that flow from that is increased confidence. That increased confidence is something you automatically project in how you walk, how you talk, how you conduct yourself, your swagger. You'll see that will draw people to you as you keep improving day by day and year by year. They'll feel your ever-increasing positive energy. They'll feel drawn in and want to be part of your world. In this episode, I want to specifically drill into a rather difficult problem effective ways people can stay informed as a citizen. Being informed and smart is cool and part of your continuous improvement and drive toward excellence. The focus will be where I am from, America, so my examples are US-centric in this episode, but the general approach should work if you live in other places, with the possible exception of if the media in your country is totally state-controlled. Now, how do you find truth and information that is based on evidence and facts in a world that is increasingly polarized with growing distrust in news sources, governments, and systems of order? How do you know that the information that you are consuming to process according to your values and beliefs and to inform your opinions and decision-making is legitimate, true, and correct? What I want to get into today is one aspect of that how to stay informed on what is going on in the world, in your country, in your locality. I won't talk about politics. I feel that is your business. What I want to talk about is two things. First, how did we get into this mess? And second, what tools and approaches you can use to help tell truth from fiction in the fire hose of content that you're getting from the internet, social media, and news sources. We will get into the specifics in this episode right after this brief word from our sponsor, me. Hi everyone, welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Flirting. I am David, the author of the book of the same name, Gentleman's Guide to Flirting, available on Amazon.com. I am also your host and the exalted leader of the Gentleman's Guide to Flirting empire. You will be able to find this content on YouTube or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for joining. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 10 of the Gentleman's Guide to Flirting. This episode is the first in a self-improvement series that we will do as part of this channel and podcast, alongside the other content that we have in our niche. Overall excellence is one of the keys to our whole approach to building your natural confidence in every area of your life, including your interactions and appeal to women. Being smart is cool. Being smart is sexy. Women admire men who are smarter, better informed, and who have and exercise good judgment. Being smart and informed makes you more of an asset to your family, friends, and others you care about. 
Being smart and informed makes you more credible at work, in business, and in many areas of life. I think most would agree with those assertions. Are you sure that your news and other information sources are fact-based and reliable? Are you being fed false information by those sources? How can you tell the difference? What can you do to help ensure that you are getting the highest quality information to help you form your opinions, political and worldviews, and generally do your duty to be an informed citizen? I want to discuss a very tough problem that has existed for a long time in various forms, but has gotten increasingly worse in recent years. I never planned to talk about this specific topic, but over the past few years I've seen a large percentage of people, mostly in my home country of the US, going down a problematic path. People don't trust their news sources or governments. So how are they to stay informed? How are you as a man going to be the best leader for your family and in your community if you have false information being fed to you? I have the same problem. I don't have this figured out in a way that I can share in an easy step or two to simply resolve the problem. What I can do is tell you how we got here and give you some advice on how to deal with the current situation. So how did we get here? I learned a lot about the history of how we got here from a video from Sue Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R, -E who used to be the director of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's website and their online news operations. And she was also a journalist for years before that. She gave a keynote presentation in 2017 at a conference named Internet Dagarna, Internet D-A-G-A-R-N-A, -A, in 2017 in Stockholm, Sweden. The uh, purpose of our keynote was uh, to describe the 2016 U.S. election, but I found the historical content, the background in her uh, keynote presentation, enlightening. I'll use portions of her presentation to get us started with my commentary mixed in. I want to take a minute for us to remember the early to middle days of the Internet. So when the internet first came along from 1990 until maybe as recently as 2005, 2007, 2010, we felt, I think many people felt many different things, but I felt and many of us felt that the internet was going to have a great leveling effect and a kind of democratizing effect on people. Suddenly, for the first time, we could communicate across large distances instantaneously with people pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, countries that were repressive authoritarian regimes had a harder time censoring news and information and so their people had access to material that they hadn't previously had we started seeing sites sites like wikipedia develop and even the mainstream media itself which historically had uh, taken a kind of a gatekeeper function by accident it couldn't do otherwise even the mainstream media was kind of opening up and we were seeing that people were now having access to what was in effect their own printing press their own ability to publish that was going to open up and democratize access people would get a voice who had historically been marginalized and disadvantaged and so we thought or many of us thought that the internet was going to be a great thing for humanity and make us wiser smarter, more compassionate. 
in the intervening years since then, I think we can now pick out, there are three, what I would characterize as sort of troubling trends or precursors that kind of point the way to the election result in the United States. So I'm gonna talk through uh, these three things that some were visible at the time and some are probably only now becoming obvious to us in retrospect. The first is that the internet famously um, has broken the news industry, famously and accidentally. It used to be that news, it was possible to have a news company that was profitable and successful. Throughout much of the 20th century, that was the case. In those days, ordinary people, you and me, we did not pay the full costs of the news that we consumed, and we did not have to, it wasn't necessary. And that was primarily because of advertising. So advertisers were heavily subsidizing the news industry. That was broken accidentally by the internet. Today, we find ourselves in a situation where roughly 80 cents of every digital dollar, which today is most dollars, um, that is spent on advertising goes to Facebook and to Google. And that leaves about 20 cents, depending on the numbers that you look at, about 20 cents left for everybody else, which includes the news industry. And so the result of that is that the news industry, their business model, their revenue model has been essentially shattered and they have a lot less cash to work with than they used to. You can see that in this chart. And if you're involved in news or you hang out in circles that care about news and the future of news, you've probably seen a version of this chart before. We call it the holy shit graph. And it shows the cliff, right? So you can see a very healthy industry for decades and decades. And then around about 2000, the revenues just fall off a cliff. The end result of that has been in the United States today, we have about half the number of working journalists that we had about 20 years ago. The picture is a little bit different depending on the country that you live in, but the story is essentially the same. And what I would say is that we are only now at the very beginnings of feeling the societal impact of that loss of journalists. The second trend I'm gonna call out is that the internet has developed into a machine for micro-targeting and persuading people. For the first 10 or so years of the internet, it didn't really have a business model. Um, and there is a guy in California who runs a website called Pinboard. Pinboard. His name is Matya Chavglosky. And Matya says the business model for the internet was initially storytelling for investors. And so you went to VCs and you told them a story about how you could achieve, you know, hockey stick growth and you would make a lot of money in the end. If you could persuade them, you got a lot of money to work with. The internet now has developed a business model, it's developed two. One is um, for some kinds of entertainment properties, subscription model is working. And for practically everything else, including the news media, the model that has taken root is one of advertising. <clears throat> but advertising the internet today is radically different from the advertising that our parents were used to. <clears throat> so here's how advertising used to work. You wanted to reach a lot of people, and so what you did was you bought time on television programs or in print media, and that worked okay. And in doing that, you were only able to very loosely target groups. So you could target, you know, American families or people living in Toronto or teenagers, but you were really only able to target big, broad groups. And you couldn't actually be sure that you were going to reach the people you were trying to reach. That has all changed today. So today, let's say this is me. I joined Facebook. 
And when I join Facebook, I voluntarily give up a certain amount of information about myself, my gender, the city that I live in, the college that I went to, and where I work. And then as I wander around the internet, I'm constantly exuding more information by the things that I like, the things that I tweet, the stuff that I comment on, things that I buy. I manually update my own profiles. And so I'm constantly sort of putting out a fog of new data. That data is collected, for example, by Facebook, but not only by Facebook, and put in a container which is named for me and specific to me. Now, if I were an advertiser and I want to reach people like me, I would do that through Facebook. I would use the create ad link, which is accessible to anybody. You don't need to be, I, I can make ads on Facebook. I could look for women who are adults, who are college graduates, who live in San Francisco. I could narrow it to women who were originally from Canada. I could narrow it further to people who are interested in technology. And then I could narrow it even further, let's say, to people who are fans of Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale. That would spit out for me the 1,500 people in the San Francisco Bay Area who match that um, profile. And then as an advertiser, I could, for a really small amount of money, $30 or $100, I could target those very specific people with a specific message. So this is brand new, right? You could not do this 10 years ago. The third trend or precursor that I'm going to call out is uh, social media. So social media has, again, this is an accident, but social media appears to have accelerated and deepened a hyper-partisanship that has always existed in human society. Um, it has made it worse. So when the internet first came along, a new capability that publishers got was for the first time we could see how people were actually interacting with the content that we were creating. We could see where they came to our sites from, we could see what they clicked on, how long they stayed on that page, and where they went to afterwards. This was a new capability, and what it gave rise to was a kind of, you know, never-ending A-B testing. So we were constantly looking at the performance of the headlines that we wrote. We could test images against each other, story length. And so we could continuously optimize all of our work to make it likelier that people would click on it and would want to share it. And this eventually developed into a reasonably profitable business model, especially if the material that you focused on was stuff that was intended to entertain people. You didn't need the heavy costs of like international um, foreign bureaus. You didn't need a lot of copy editing. You didn't need a heavy research team. And so you could actually make money doing this. It turned out that social sharing was driven largely by emotion. And it turned out that the emotion that was the easiest to sort of produce on a predictable basis was anger. And it turned out that the kind of content that most predictably elicited anger and therefore social sharing was politics. And it was specifically hyperpartisan political coverage. And so that's how we developed hyperpartisan news. It grew out of clickbait and it grew out of our ability to optimize stories. I think Sue Gardner's retelling of the history and background of the situation, how it got here is just perfection. So I changed my mind. I didn't break into it. I wanted you to hear the whole thing in her words without me uh, splitting it up. But I'd like to just go highlight just a few things that she said there that are relevant to our thesis in this episode. 
In her three troubling trends, she mentioned that the internet broke the news industry and the graph that she showed on screen, I want to dispel a little bit for the benefit of the people listening via podcast without video. Uh, she said basically roughly 80 cents of all digital ad dollars go to Google and Facebook. Uh, the, the breakdown she showed on screen was a uh, Google was getting 40 cents of every dollar and Facebook 37 cents of every dollar with the remaining 23 cents spread of across for everybody else. And that was both digital and the traditional legacy news media who have their own, their own websites now. So you can see how lopsided the situation is. Yeah, the, as far as I know, the numbers from the time she she gave her presentation in 2017 haven't changed much between then and now. Uh, we're, we're recording this in August of 2020. It's still very much lopsided between Google and Facebook compared to everyone else. So if you're not Google or Facebook, you're uh, struggling. So basically, the news industry has far less cash than they used to have. Uh, the graph that she showed there, that she called the oh shit graph, uh, showed a steady improvement for the traditional news media from the 40s and 1940s and 1950s up to the advent of the internet. And then, like she said, the, the revenue for those folks just dropped off a cliff. So it was quite devastating for them. She mentioned that uh, as far as she knew, there was about half the number of working journalists now than there were back in uh, the news media's heyday. Her second troubling trend was uh, that the it was about around micro targeting and persuasion for being able to place ads, and I can tell you that's that's still the case. What she described about Facebook is definitely the case. I I set up in support of the uh, book Gentleman's Guide to Flirting. I set up a little crappy web page through what Facebook offers. I, I have the main page at Gentleman's Guide to Flirting com, but. I'm just exploring around to see what works best through social media for my book, for marketing the, my book and getting the word out there. And I, I could do exactly what she said. I can I can place an ad through Facebook right now as a brand new uh, person on Facebook with no following, no reputation whatsoever there. Uh, you just click add and I'm sorry, click create, click add, and you'll get walked through this beautiful, fully featured wizard interface that allows you to do incredible things in, in terms of you know targeting specifically where you want your ads placed and who they go in front of for example i could put a ad for the gentleman's guide to flirting book targeted at single men in new york city of a certain age range who are also new york yankees fans uh, it's just it's just incredible so I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. I just think it's interesting. And like she said, that uh, advertising seems to be the predominant way that if you're going to survive and make money uh, now in the modern era, it sounds like advertising's pretty much your lifeblood. Uh, she mentioned that subscription models in her um, estimation were working for certain type, types of what she called entertainment properties. Uh, for gaming and some other things where people are willing to pay for the content because they love it so much. But for everyone else who's scrambling around for the uh, their, 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 their share of the um, every dollar of digital ad dollars, it's brutal out there, brutal competition. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a tough problem. I thought it was interesting in the, uh, her third point around accelerated hyper-partisanship in social media. I thought it was really interesting and highly relevant to our topic here in this episode when she discussed exactly how 
and like in her experience with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, how they tried to survive once they saw the internet was taking off and, and it was kind of a, a big threat to them business-wise. She said that when the internet came around, that publishers like the like her employer, the, C, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, could use metrics to see how people and readers were coming in and interacting with their material. Uh, any person operating a website can see where your reader came from. You can see where, like from a, what's called a refer attack, how they got to uh, your site, where they coming from exactly. And of course, while they're on your site, if you have enough logging, you can tell what they clicked on while you're on your site, how they navigated around, how they, how long they stayed on a particular article, and where they went to afterwards. So she described what she called A-B testing, where organizations were looking to see, hey, if I use this image versus that image, does, does it get more people to click? Uh, do they stay on the articles longer? Do they? Basically, the point is... They, these, these providers need you to stay on their websites as long as possible so that you're consuming advertisements so that they can get paid so that they can survive. So that's a absolutely essential point to our topic here. And if you think about it, it explains a lot of what you see is like, you've got so many uh, attempts out there of varying degrees of quality to try to, to try to attract your attention to get you to click to go to a platform whether that's cnn or facebook or or google or fox news or anything they're trying to get you to first of all draw your eyes there to get you to come onto their platform and stay as long as possible it's just a survival thing for them so in some cases you may have uh you know people who are playing kind of in the gray areas there's there's clickbait like like uh, sue gardner talked about clickbait headlines clickbait Thumbnail images, you know, images to try to get you to click, um, just to try to draw you over. It's not, um, doesn't see, doesn't have a very f high quality feel. It feels a little icky, but that's that's how it is. So, what do you do about it? What do you do about this problem? What do you do when you have literally hundreds of news sources and internet sites and social media platforms? that are clambering for your attention, where some of the content is truth and facts and evidence, but a lot of it's fake news, a lot of it's attempts to spread fear or sadness or make increase the sense of alienation, to spread uncertainty, to spread doubt, to spread hate, uh, to the point where like n normal people sometimes feel repelled by that and want to not have anything to do with it. What do you do when there's so much hostility in the news? How do you how do you still find your sources of credible information so that you can be that informed person that we're that we're trying to be? Generally, what you want to do is get your news and your information from the most credible sources. Now, how do you do that? There's hundreds of them, and all of them claim to be credible. And if you dare say that one of them's not you'll have a mob of people rise up to try to swat you down to try to say that it is. But so how do you, how do you do that? Uh, what's on screen here is a, it's what's called the media bias chart that is produced by a company, company called ad Fontes media, a D space F O N T E S space media. I purchased a license for this so that I can show you guys. And I bought a license cause I am a baller and I don't, and I respect people's copyrights, but I want you guys to be able to see this thing. This is the latest version that they've produced. They've had, um, versions of this for a few years now. This is the June, 2020 version. So I think it's fair, fairly uh, current. 
Uh, now, these guys don't have, um, just to be clear, these guys don't have any monopoly on good ideas and judgment of the news industry worldwide, but I think it's kind of useful. The, the way to read this chart, it's kind of a mess, but the way to read it is, if you're a news organization, you want to be as close to the top center, the, the top vertically and the center horizontally as possible. So if you look near the top center, you see AP, which is the Associated Press, and then Reuters, which is another uh, a news organization. And clustered in there, you see it's a little hard to read, but you see the Weather Channel, NPR, Denver Post, ABC, CBS, NBC, and some other stuff, and some other stuff j jumbled up in there in that area that's um, kind of boxed in by green. The green dashed box rectangle is, uh, the legend says, it's most reliable. So as you work your way from the top middle down downward, you get to mixed reliabilities, the yellow section, somewhat unreliables, the orange section, and what they consider unreliables in the red section near the bottom. As you go from left to right in the chart here, uh, the, th the further left you get is more, is more extreme, progressive, liberal, democratic, again, using the U.S.-centric model that we're talking about here. In your country, you may call it something else. As you move to the right, the further right you get, it gets to be, you know, hyper-partisan right, then, then rightmost portion of the graph is most extreme right. So that would be more conservative. If you look at the top center of the graph, the top center where you see AP Reuters there, AP is one organization, Reuters is another, and with a bunch of other stuff clustered underneath of it, NPR, NBC, CBS, Bloomberg, Politico, and, and Washington Post, New York Times, and, and several others there, uh, those are where... I suggest kind of focus your attempts to get news from. Now, I'm going to tell you, some of them aren't the sexiest sources, like NPR, AP, and Reuters. They kind of just, quote-unquote, report the facts. But since the point of this entire episode is to try to give you advice on where you can find fact-based news reporting, I think this is a good place to start and a good way to think about it. So look at the top of this. It's kind of like an inverted V there. You've got AP Reuters at the top, at the apex of the inverted V. Then you got two legs. you got one leg that's stretching off to the lower right and one leg that's stretching off to the lower left. The, as you read down through things, that are, as you work down the left leg, you see like Wonkett and Palmer Report and some other things, Daily Cost, Crooks and Liars, near the bottom most left corner of the graph. As you work your way down there, they get more and more extreme, uh, more and more unreliable, more like more likely to have fake news content and clickbaity stuff, and that be really a good source of information for you. Same thing if you look on the lower right hand side, you got Infowars down there. So you know this is just information for you. I suggest you kind of bookmark this location and the if you're watching this on YouTube, bookmark this video and come back to this and and think about the sources that you're looking at to go get your news and try to, and to just try it out. Try to pay more attention to the things that are in the upper middle of this chart to see if that improves the outcomes that you're getting, the quality of the news that you're getting as you uh, try to uh, keep informed and stay abreast of what's going on in the world. The second thing I want to point out to you is this. People on the YouTube channel, you can see a, P, a page of, on English Wikipedia called Perennial, Perennial Sources. For people listen, listening via podcast where they can't see the video, if you Google Wikipedia Perennial Sources, Wikipedia space Perennial space Sources, 
the top result should be a link to this page. The reason why I bring you here is if I want to give you a second perspective, the, that, the, the last uh, chart that I showed you is from one smallish 12 or 15 person a nonprofit, I think, one organization's view. They're like a media watchdog organization. They try to report on bias to help us make, make informed decisions on where we should get our news from. But I want to give you a second perspective. This is from English Wikipedia, and this is more of a consensus-based perspective on various news sources because Wikipedia's role in the world is to be a, a quote-unquote tertiary news source. So when you look at a Wikipedia article, that's not intended to be like just an indisputable fact. Wikipedia articles are places where you're, you, you can go to get an orientation in a subject and almost every line in a, in, a, in a modern Wikipedia article should have reference links at the bottom. So you can go back to the secondary source that is more authoritative. So you can go and verify the, the accuracy and authenticity and legitimacy of what's said in the Wikipedia article. So you go to the Wikipedia page for a particular subject, whatever it is, Donald Trump, uh, a rock, an insect, whatever, whatever it is, whatever, whatever you want to know about a country, government, anybody, anything. And the, but the point is you go there to get your orientation by, by reading the article, but to convince yourself that what's being said in there is complete and factual, there should be citation links at the bottom for every point made in the made in the article. Now, how do you, since everybody in the world can edit a wiki, any Wikipedia page, any liar on the earth can go into a Wikipedia page and say any kind of you know, false statement that they want to. So, for the citation links that I mentioned at the bottom of each page, they need to point to something that's reputable. Like one of our principles here, or things I'm proposing here is. You got to consider the reputation of the person or entity that wrote something when you're looking when trying to verify is something factual or not. You need to look at the the, the the platform or publication itself to see if it's credible and see the the history of that publication. Do they have a kind of history of when they make a mistake? Do they go back and publish a correction and apologize and fix it? Or do they just like just spew out any kind of fake news and garbage that they want and they go never go back and correct anything because their point was to draw people in there so they can look at ads and keep you trapped on the platform like we've been talking about. So what I've got on screen right now is you see like there's a color there's a color coded list of new sources here. The, the, the list of new sources that make into the leftmost column, the source column, are the ones that, co that come up most often when Wiki Wikipedia community members are kind of like disputing or discussing which sources are the most credible. So the reason why I, will, I bring you here and point, bring this to your attention is so that you can benefit from the crowdsourced work of a group of very passionate knowledge ecosystem people. Because what I'm asking you to do to validate the reputation of every news source, publication, and author is more than a full-time job. And how how you possibly have that much time? But I think if you're if you're if you someone sends you a link or you look at something and you're saying, hey, I don't know if this is right or not. First of all, see where it came from. You can use the chart that I showed you before to see if it shows up on there. Or you can come here to the Wikipedia Perennial Sources page and just look up and see what they say about it. There's quite a few organizations listed here. I'll just point out a couple of them. Like you got CNN here. I know a lot of people don't agree with this statement. I understand. But there is consensus that news 
broadcast or published by CNN is generally reliable. However, I report consists solely of user-generated content, and talk show content should be treated as opinion pieces. Some editors consider CNN biased, though not to the extent that it affects reliability. You see how that's going? Like, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of talk out there in the polarized like dispute arguments. There's like CNN and MSNBC on one side and Fox News and the like on the other. My impression is that their standard news broadcast in off-peak hours, like during the morning time during, and around midday, those typically are more okay uh, in terms of bias, but not being terribly biased. Like one source may be a little to the left, a little to the right. But as you go into the evening time, where there's a lot more viewership and there's a lot more competition for eyes, that's when they that's when those networks they run their opinion shows. They're, that's the Hannitys, uh, that, that's the that's the Tucker Carlson's, that's that's CNN's uh, opinion shows. That's where they're trying to draw the eyeballs in there, and those don't even claim to be news. So, I think a lot of the disagreement between people who are like hate MSNBC or hate CNN or hate Fox News is because they're thinking more of the primetime opinion shows that come in later when there's a lot more, there's millions of people watching those shows, but the regular news broadcasts that aren't as sexy or appealing, they come on earlier in the day and they're, they're not quite as bad in terms of bias. They may be a little on the left, a little on the right, but the opinion the opinion shows are wildly on the left and wildly on the right because that's, just, that's basically what people want to see. If you think back to what Sue Gardner said in her keynote presentation, she said that what worked even years ago when, 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 the, when the internet was first starting to displace a lot of traditional business for, for the news organizations, we, the public, the consuming public, tend to prefer content that makes us angry and specifically political content, and more specifically, partisan content. So if the problem is that our news is broken, it's kind of also our fault, is it not? Because the, the businesses that are, that are in the news industry, in addition to some of the social media companies that are in play, is maybe not profitable to be to play it down the middle to be unbiased because you're considered boring. Like NPR and Politico, they're not. not super sexy, but they're the best sources of information, in, in, in my opinion. But it's what I'm trying to recommend to you. But if you're trying to stay alive, if you're trying to pay salaries and, and generate a profit as a business, so if the, if you're get, if you're getting ad revenue because you're putting opinion content on during your peak hours, that is making people hate one another and making them upset, but they keep coming back over and over again and consuming the ads and you can show that to your advertisers and get revenue up. They're just businesses and they're doing, doing what they think is best to stay alive. Cause if they just give you straight, boring down the middle news, they'll, they may die. My last point, the last uh, tool or tip I want to leave you with is Betteridge's law of headlines. Betteridge's law of headlines states any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. So that should help you filter through a lot of opinion pieces and just filler material that writers are getting paid by the word to try to draw you in, the clickbait stuff. If, generally speaking, if you see a headline that says something like, was life just found on Mars yesterday with a question mark on the end? The answer is no, don't need to read it. Was a cure for AIDS found in France yesterday with a question mark at the end of the answer is no. So you'll see that a lot if you keep that in the back of your mind when you're looking through your head, your, your news feeds and just kind of just mentally keep track of 
if you do click on an article that ends with a question mark, how, how often do you, does that time spent end up with the outcome that you're satisfied with? Uh, so Betteridge's Law of Headlines, uh, a good thing to keep in mind. That's pretty much all I have for this episode. Uh, this was a lot longer than normal, but I do hope that going to that level of detail helps you deal with the problem that millions of people, including me, just struggle with. Trying to stay informed without getting my head stuffed full of fake news and lies and false information. So that's what I got for you this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Uh, take care. Bye.